Hello and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about mathematics, puzzles, numbers and games. My name is Alex and I am one of your hosts and with me as always is... Hello, I'm Alaric. Hello, yeah, that's a different, uh, you've changed it up. Yeah, I know. It's getting shorter each time, but then we talk about it. You're just going to be like, Alaric, but you know, yep. in a few episodes. And uh, I'm going to shorten it and it's going to be like, Hello and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about whatever. This is Alex and this is... And then you would say, Alaric. And then yep, that's, sorry. that's how that's going to go. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's the evening. We've all had, you know, it's been a hard day. We're relaxing by the fire with a whiskey. And, I've been uh, off all week. It's been half term. You've been off all week. So you mm. have no excuse for that lapse in mental behavior. There. See, when I prepare stuff for odds and evenings, I do quite a lot of work on the maps. And then as soon as you say your little spiel at the beginning, I suddenly panic and realize, oh, wait, I forgot to... Uh, prepare something to say about my actual life oh yeah okay well so you had half term that's fine that's yeah. uh you know that's good enough i, I had my very little maths i had my birthday which is always in half term and mm. uh so i'm 27 now which is not a bad number because that's three to the three your there penultimate a... cube are there any other oh god <laughs> <laughs> you can't say that <laughs> what's my next cube 64 yep and then one two five. Oh, on I can reach one two five. Easy. Penultimate cube, indeed. <laughs> I'm gonna hit one two five. Do you know? Look, by the time I'm a hundred, do you know what year it's gonna be? Two thousand and ninety-one. I'm. I'm gonna be. It's. You know, we're gonna be able to keep me alive till one hundred twenty-five by then. Two thousand and ninety-one. <laughs> anyway, do you want to do some maths? Hmm. Okay, tic-tac-toe, noughts and crosses. Are you familiar with it? A strange game. The only winning move is not to play. I mean, you can get a draw. Uh, yeah, you can get a draw, and uh, it's very embarrassing when you don't get a draw. That's the thing, when, when you're a kid, it's like, oh yeah, gonna play noughts and crosses, gonna beat my brother, noughts and crosses, and then you draw all the time. And then once you're sort of like an adult, if ever you don't get a draw, it's very embarrassing for the person who loses. It's a very different type of game. It's like, you know those pub quizzes where the pub quiz is genuinely difficult and it's kind of hard to get points? Yep. And then there's the pub quizzes in the middle, which are, in my opinion, the best ones, where it's like, you're, you're going to get about two-thirds of them. Yep. The, on pub quiz writing websites, they say aim for about 70%. Okay. And then there's the ones which are so easy, whoever wins is just based on making the fewest mistakes rather than correctly yep. answering the most. That's what Noughts and Crosses tic-tac-toe feels like. I think people aren't brave enough with their Noughts and Crosses opening strategies. People start in the, the middle, usually, and then at primary school you learn to go into the corner next, because if you go onto one of the edges, someone else has the force win. Yeah. Um, and then you never really progress past that. And then someone in your primary school class will discover the corner trick, so they open in the corner... And then the other person claims the middle. And so you go in the opposite corner. And then if they go into one of the corners, then you have a false win. Yeah. That wins for a while, and then people adapt to it. And then people don't go a step further. They never go for the edge strategy. Or well, start in the middle on the edge, just to freak yeah. them out. So that's what I do. But just because people don't know how to respond to it. Yeah. So imagine you go in the top middle. If they go into left middle, right middle, bottom left or bottom right 
you have a forced win. Otherwise, you have a draw. Left middle, right middle. Okay. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. So, oh, if they go for like the like the bottom corner or something because they're trying to be smart. Yeah. Then there's a there's a forced win you can make off that. Yep. What is it? Let's say they go bottom left. Yes. You go top left. Uh, because you block that line, and they go yep. they go to the right, then you go in the middle. Yeah, that's not bad. No, that's not bad at all. And because the people I'm playing against tend to be math students, yeah, they've definitely played noughts and crosses lots in their life, mm-hmm. and so they know the corner and the middle strategies. But it's one of those ones which just people haven't explored. So I want to show you a version of noughts and crosses. It's kind of game theory thing. It's called Hereri Tic Tac Toe, named after Frank Hereri. Okay. He was a, a graph theory person. He was, he was very big in the fifties and sixties. Did he shrink later? Uh, well, he's currently dead, so I imagine he's got a lot smaller he's than lot, he was. A lot Frank. smaller than he was. Okay. <laughs> he died in two thousand and five. Oh, I see. Um, so I, I came across this in a Martin Gardner book, and the idea is you've got different aims, different objectives, things that you're trying to make. So it's a generalised version of Noughts and Crosses. You can think of Noughts and Crosses as a version of it where you're trying to make the uh, triomino, the three in a row. If we had different sized things that we're trying to make, who has the win, and how many moves can they do it in, and what size of board do you need to guarantee a win? Okay, so if I'm trying to make just a one in a row... Yep. I win. Yes, and you can do that in one move and on a one-by-one one board. We're only going to do square boards okay. to make it easy. Square boards of what size? Oh, uh, we're going to decide what size board is necessary for each of these. So, a one-by-one one board and one move is sufficient to make the monomino. Monomino. Just one square. Do, do, yep. do, do, do. <laughs> um, so, to make a domino? Yes. What's the strategy there? How many moves can you do it in? Can you force a win? Uh, so you... Oh, if it's a... If the square board is two by two. Yep. You go in one of them. They yep. go in another one. And then you go in a third one and you win. Yep. So you can you can do it in two moves. And you can do it in a two by two. Uh, and we're saying for diagonals count in all of this. Uh, we're not going to do diagonals. Oh, so we're not going to do diagonals. Then what I said isn't strictly true. Because you could go in one corner. They could go in somewhere that's not the opposite corner and then if you go in that opposite corner you haven't won and they go in the last space and they haven't won and it's a draw yeah so it's possible if you're playing badly to not win that game yeah. unlike the monomino yeah um, let's say we try to come up with the best strategy okay so people play to, to win yeah okay okay so with three blocks uh, there are two different possibilities here you've got three in a row or you've got a little L-shaped thing. Oh, that's allowed. Okay. Um, so, uh, they're two separate games. Let's do the three-in-a-row case first. What size of board do you need to guarantee a win? To guarantee? Yep. Guarantee. To uh, to guarantee, with best strategy from both players, how big does the board have to be to force a triomno? Well, it's not three by three. True. I think because that's knots and crosses. I think it's five by five. It's actually smaller. What? It's not the four. Mm. Explain yourself. Okay, so the first player, who's the one that's going to be doing the winning, goes in one of the centre ones. 
the one of the... Okay, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. I'm yeah. imagining bottom left. What would you like me to imagine instead? Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. Okay. Bottom left is fine. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the other player tries and blocks them. Where would you like to go? To the right next to it. Yep, sure. Uh, they go top left of the middle four. Yep. They've now got two in a row. Yeah. So you block them in one direction. Block the top direction, and then yep. they and they okay, and then and then they go in the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. So they can do it in four moves. Oh, sorry, they can do it in. They just straight do it in three moves because they have the yeah, flexibility to. If if it, if it was a three by three, then you wouldn't be able to block them at one end. Yep. So what we're coming up with is two numbers for each game. What size board do you need, and how many moves can you do it in? And this is when both you and your opponent are trying to make the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Notice that the second player never has a winning strategy. Yeah, what's the deal with that? So, uh, if they did have a winning strategy, then the first player could just make any random move, non-consequential one, which can never hurt. And then they would adapt whatever the second player's winning strategy was. Who's they? The first player would adapt to whatever the second player's strategy is. Okay, so let's say there exists some strategy for the second player to win. Yep. The first player can make a move, which could never hurt. Having more counties on the board is always an advantage. Mm-hmm. And then they become the second player, because they wait on whatever the second player is going to do as their first move. Ah. Uh... And they do exactly the same strategy, but they're a move up. So there can't exist a winning strategy for the second player. What if it's unstable? What if the first player has something, and then the second player can block that but if you're gone first uh. the key here is that the moves can never hurt it's not like chess where you you introduce asymmetries so like in chess if you just copied someone then eventually you get a move that you can't copy yep because imagine uh, you move a queen to near the center of the board they move their queen to near the center of the board then you just take their queen with your queen and they can't repeat that move yeah Whereas the, the strategy here, like, it never hurts to have an extra counter on the board, and so the second player can't have a winning strategy. Mm. Fine. That makes it easier for us. Yeah. Should we do the L-shaped triumph now? Yes. Can this be done with... I'm just thinking through whether it yep. can be done with three. And the answer is yes, if you go in the middle first. Because you yeah. go in the middle, and they go in the top... And then you go, say, middle left, and they're yep. like, oh, naughty. And they and they go bottom left to block your L. But you can make a different L, a more different yep. L. As soon as you've got two in a row, then there's four different squares that would complete him. Yeah, and you can't be you can't be blocking all those. No. It's too hard. Not enough so you time can do it on a three-by-three three board, and you can do it in three moves. Yeah. Herrera called those efficient where you can make it without wasting any blocks along the way. Hmm. Okay. Should we talk through the tetrominoes? Yes. Let's do. Let's do that. Let's leave the square for last because that's the interesting one. Okay. So let's start with the line, shall we? Or is that one the interesting line? as well? Do you want to do the the S or the Z? The line is hard. I, I've got the book with me here, and I've got their numbers up, so I know what I'm aiming for. I just don't know the strategies on these. Okay. The line, you can only force on a 7x7 board and in 8 moves. 7x7. Which is crazily high. It must be a complicated strategy. Yeah, because you can't just go... Because they could just... Yeah, that's interesting. Oh, you must must be skipping. You must be like... Then you do one over there, and then they try and block it in the middle, and then you do something else. Yeah. 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 
That does sound complicated. Are there any easy ones? The L-shaped one you can do efficiently. You can do it on a 4x4 board and in only four moves. Okay, let's talk through that then. So, what do you think the starting place is? Well, centre square seems to be better. Yeah. Let's do centre bottom left again. And then let's have the opponent go... Do, do, is it is it either L or J? Could... Uh, it's any... Yeah, any rotation of... But that's a mirror flip. Oh, uh, okay, let's have L. Okay. Um, and then the J case would be exactly the same. You just would reflect everything that we're saying in this argument. So if you're trying to make the L, you, what you want to do is you want to be is you want to be crossing off the the little tip at the end if you're defending against it. So if someone goes bottom left middle, you would go slightly left all on the bottom because you're trying to block that. Uh, rotations of this would be allowed as well. Yeah, no, I know that. So you would be trying to block off all the different rotations. I think taking one of the centre squares seems better. The centre squares are just, they're part of more L's. Yeah, okay. So you would take the one next to it horizontally. Okay. And then they would take the one above the original space. Yep. And then the opponent would block them off at the top. And now there's no L's that they can really make. So maybe that wasn't a good strategy. We know that there is an efficient strategy out there. But we're too stupid. <laughs> Give me a minute. Okay. <laughs> okay. We'll... Okay. Oh. Then they go below where they were before. Sorry, is this second move? This is third move. Okay. So they've got three vertically in a line. Yeah. There's two different L's there. Threatening. Oh yeah. Sorry, these L's are only three tall, aren't they? So there's the one where it looks like an L, or the 180 degree reflection of rotation of that. Yeah. Okay, so we're pretty clever after all. Not sure how good podcasting this is. Hey. These are very visual things. I'm a very good editor. This is going to sound great. (laughs) So, what I wanted to talk about is some of these are not forcible, even in an infinite grid. What do you mean by forcible? As the first player, you can't have an optimum strategy which would get there playing against a perfect second player. You can't guarantee it? Yeah. Okay. So if the second player plays well enough, you'll never be able to make that shape. Okay. And the square tetromino, mm-hmm. you can't force on an infinite grid. Yeah, it's too defined. Because it can't rotate. That's the, that's the problem. Hmm. There's no rotate. There's, so with the L, you're actually making four different shapes. But with the yep. square, there's, you're only making one shape. So all it takes is one move to block one shape. Whereas with four different shapes, it takes four moves to block one shape. And... You know, it doesn't take very long to make it. That's probably not great logic, but you see what I'm you see what I'm going for. I, I've got quite a pretty proof for it. Okay. As is often with these tetramino and pentamino style problems. Yes. There's some sort of colouring argument usually that you can make. Colouring argument. So it, it's it's a different way of doing a parity argument. It's just a, a way of representing it. So to show you some classic examples of these. Like, one that's often done in schools is, imagine you have a chessboard, 8 by 8 Yeah. And you cut out two of the opposite corners. Yeah. So you've got 62 squares left. And then you give people the challenge of trying to cover all of the squares with dominoes. Right. It's impossible, no matter how you try and do it, because a domino will always cover one black and one white square. Oh, but you've cut, you've, you've cut off either two black or two white. Yep. 
That's okay. it. Or another example of this, I imagine you've got the seven Tetris pieces. So let's count the reflections of these things as distinct. Yep. So the seven pieces. Yep. I've got some lights which are shaped like this. Yes. Um, and you gave them to me. And one of the tempting things is to put them into some sort of rectangle so that they're just pleasing. Right, yeah. It's impossible. And there's a nice colouring argu- argument you can make. Imagine you had your rectangle and you shaded it in like a checkerboard. What you want is the same number of black and white squares. Yeah. If you look at each of the tetrominos, the tetrominos, yeah. and you colour them in in a checkerboard style, yeah. what happens? They all have I, they have two each. One of the pieces that isn't truthful. Oh, the T shape. Yeah. Ah. And because there's only one of them, you must have a different number of white and black squares. Yeah. And so you can't possibly make them into a rectangle. Okay. These parity style things, the colouring style things, are really pleasing. Mm. Because suddenly you've broken into the uh, the problem without having to work for all the different cases. Yeah. And some sometimes they get more complicated. Imagine for this square tetramino yep. that you've got an infinite grid and you've divided it into dominoes which are laying horizontally and they're arranged like bricks would be in a wall. Yep. So like... Off, shifted off sli- by one, yeah. Yeah, in each that's row. it. Yeah. Every square, a two by two square, contains one domino completely in that. Yeah. There's no way to do it without. Yep. And so, as the second player, what you do is you see where the first player's gone, mm-hmm. and you take the other square of that domino. Mm. Because there's got to be three dominoes in each square. Well, it's like you have one complete domino and two half dominoes, no matter how you place it. Yeah. So, you so RC will never let them get a complete domino. Yeah. Ha 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 ha. It's great. Which is really pleasing. It's very it's- good. I like these sort of proofs. Yeah. Do you want another one in the same sort of style? I would love one in the same sort of style. <laughs> so this one, um, I was doing a functional skills paper with some of my students, and it is kind of a pre-GCSE style paper. And they gave them some L tetraminos. And you, you're allowed to rotate and reflect as much as you want. Mm-hmm. And they gave them a 6 by 6 grid. And they asked them to fit in 8 of these things. And there's lots of ways you can do it because there's a little bit of gap. Right. Six by six grid is 36 in total. Yeah. Each of the tetraminos takes up four squares. And so if you've got eight of them, that adds up to 32. Yeah. So you get four squares left over. Yeah. And so one of my students asked, can you do it with nine? And I was like, oh, good question. And a day later, I go back with an answer for them after trying it manually lots yeah. and failing. Yeah. Uh, it turns out it's impossible. Now, the checkerboards thing doesn't work, um, but there's a different way you can colour it. Yep. Imagine you colour it in vertical stripes. So, black going down one column, then white, then black, then white, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. No matter how you lay an L tetramino, ah. it will have three of one colour and one of the other. Yep. So there's different ways that can happen. Yeah. But if you have it kind of vertically, it's got three in the same a, column and a, one in the a next. Big stripe and one, or it's or it's the middle bit of the L that's the other color. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Um, so if you've got an even number of these L shapes, you can cover the same number of white and black. Yeah. But you can't do it with a not number. Hmm. So it's impossible. Nice. 
I know. <laughs> nice. I wonder how you'd, you'd sort of write that in mathematical language rather than in pictures. People worry too much about that sort of thing. Yeah. Pictures are good. Pictures, pictures work fine. That's one of my favourite proofs for, for Pythagoras theorem is the sort of the visual ones. Things mm. like that. A visual proof is nice. Because a visual proof is, there's no difference between glyphs and pictures. Yeah. So we can come to a kind of conclusion on these Harari tic-tac-toe things. We've seen so far that only one of them fails, which was the 2 by 2 If you extend it to the fives, the pentominoes, most of them are losers. Now, anything which has a 2 by 2 square within it is definitely going to be a loser. Yeah. Um, but you can you have other prime losers, like ones which don't have a lower order loser as part of them. And most of them are by the time you get to five. It's just too hard a shape to make. You've only got three ones you can actually force. Hmm. Which are, well, they're complicated shapes to describe, but they're all kind of of the long variety rather than the squat. Right, okay. Four and one. Yeah. Oh, they are complicated to describe. Yeah. Um, What about the S and the Z? Are they they any of them? uh, Both are not doable not doable um by the time you get to six because most of them require lower ones which were also losers in this book it's only got one which it says is a plausible um like they haven't solved it yet but it's they call it snaky so imagine (laughs) is it downright 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 uh no it's four in a row yep then go up one and then go across one again (laughs) yeah that's right that is called (laughs) snaky That's perfect. Uh, Harari named all of these creations. They've all got animal names. Nice. I again, I'm so much of my research is using books from the 1970s, so I'm assuming someone's written a program to do this one. But it's the only one that they couldn't prove was a loser. Only one you couldn't prove were a loser. So it's plausibly a winner, but they can't find a way to force it. But they haven't proven that it's definitely impossible through some sort of parity argument. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, again, this is information which is only up to date up to the 70s. Mm. So, who knows? But after that point, all the sevens are definitely possible. Okay. And so on forever. So, it comes to a neat conclusion. Wait, say that again? So, all of the sevens are impossible to make. Ah, okay. Because they all require losers of lower types. To make them. Yep. Interesting. So at each level, we're getting more and more losers, which makes more and more from the level above not possible. So we just really haven't put enough computing power towards Snakey. And that sounds super, super solvable if you had a big old machine. Hmm. The problem is, if it is impossible, it's hard to prove that. Because we could run millions of simulations, but because we want to show it's impossible for all grids. Yeah. Like, even infinite. All of the ones that we've proved are impossible are ones we've got nice parity, domino shading style arguments, and there's lots of different varieties of those. Mm. Um, but this one, they, they haven't been able to find a proof like that. Right. But maybe if it is possible, then it would be easy to prove using computing. Because you can just show through all the possibilities you can make it. Yeah. So, do you remember episode 5? where we talked about Scrabble boards. Hmm. And towards the end of it, or maybe it was after the show, I don't remember, 
We talked about the concept of Scrabble with numbers instead of letters. Primes, yeah. Yeah, well, so you can do Scrabble boards that where the numbers, what counts as a word, can be any any kind of thing. But obviously, yeah. the most interesting one, obviously, it's not squares or anything. It's it primes. Yeah, that's the prime version of that game. The prime version, prime Scrabble, and you know the nice thing about it is that they're reasonably sparse. They're not very many yep. letters, but there's not an enormous number of words. Like words are in the English language compared with just all the random strings you can make. Yes, uh, yeah, and I, I do wonder, you know, how the densities match up. But anyway, we promised ourselves that we were going to have a bit of a think about this. So yep. what is it that we want to, to think about when it comes to Prime Scrabble? I, my initial thing was what the scoring on the numbers should be. Oh. Yeah, I see what you mean. So, odd numbers are easier to get down. Because you can just put them down as a... Are we going to say you're allowed to do single single number primes? Well, having a single number is... You can think of all words in normal Scrabble as having single letter words going across them. So if you write the word hello going vertically on a scrubber board. I suppose you could think of it as a whole lot of one-letter words going across, but it's not helpful to think of it that way. Yes, that's probably why that's banned in Scrabble. Yeah. Um, and and two-letter words just... Oh, no, two-letter words you're allowed. Because, yeah, that's fine. Yes, okay, fine. So, we say then that you're only allowed two-number primes or above. Yep. Now, you know the Scrabble words. You have a hand of seven. Yep which means you have seven tiles at a time. What's the proper Scrabble word for that? Uh, I think they call it a rack. A rack. A rack of seven. Mm. Yeah, and then it just works like normal Scrabble. So, the immediate problem we get into is no one really knows any primes much into the three digits. Yes. What are some of the three number primes that people know? Like, is 101 a prime? It is, and 103 is as well. They're twin primes. But people don't really know primes above that because they're hard to work out. So, I think most of the time you'd be playing low number primes, and because the last digit is always going to be odd, apart from two, which is one digit, which I suppose you won't be playing anyway, it means you've got a lot more outlets for your odd numbers than your even. Yeah, that is. Yeah, I guess that's true, because if most things are two number, that's true. So what I was thinking about were even dumps, like ones where you could get down lots of even numbers at once. Oh, like, uh, I, must, I was about to say 2241, but that divides by 3. Hmm. But things like, yeah, 2841 or something. I don't know if that's prime, but something like that, where you can just put a bunch of even numbers down. I think people have similar things in actual word scrabble, where they have vowel dumps or consonant dumps. You've got words where you've got about five vowels and one consonant, and you can get, just get rid of all of those awkward O's and I's. Hmm. So, I got into contact with Ben. Yes. And I got him to write a program. Who's Ben? Ben is our friend from university. He's our resident computing person. He knows about the computers. And one of the dangers of knowing people who are good at computing is it's always quicker in the moment to email them and get them to write a program than it is to learn yourself. And so you don't learn to program. Yes. Yes, it is. But thankfully, Ben indulges me. So, I got him to write a program of ones which had... They're definitely going to have to have an odd number at the end. But ones which were under eight digits, 
Yep. And had everything else as even numbers. Interesting. Now, it turns out there's loads. Like, way too many that you'd be able to learn. Okay. But instead, he wrote a program which has one odd number at the end, and then one of each type of even number. So a 2, a 4, a 6, an 8, and a 0. Hmm. And it turns out it's a much shorter list. Uh, looks like there's 59 of them. 59? Hey, that's, hmm. you know, that's not bad to remember. I've done worse memorization things in the past. Yeah, you one time you tried to remember all the countries or the capital cities or something like that. Yeah, I, I can name all the countries. And that was like 180-something, right? It's 190-ish, but it's controversial. It is controversial. So, this list has things like... So, the first one on here is 206483. And looking at them, they all end in either threes or nines, which makes sense. Why? Because if you've got a five at the end, then it's not prime. Because it divides by five. All numbers with a five at the end are not prime, except for five. Yeah. Yeah. And if it has a one or a seven at the end, if you add up the digits, you get a multiple of three. So it must be a multiple of three. Yeah. Okay. Um, So you could learn these, and these are more valuable than most of the even dumps because most of the time you're going to have one of each like uh, that's going to happen more often than having say five twos and a three it's, a, it's quite a claim maybe you, one you, of each might not be as valuable as like the smaller ones where you've got two or three of each yeah you're, you're probably right those you know would I mean? be quite yeah. useful yeah. yeah hey but not to belittle the work that Ben has done for us um you're right. He also did some other stuff for us. Okay. Uh, in fact, this was the first thing I asked him about. I had a theory that if you were just trying to brute force learn some primes, that's quite hard work. Mm-hmm. What would be easier is if you could learn a particular prime, and if you also knew that all of the cycles of it were also prime, then that helps you a lot. I would. So, for example, the number 13 is prime. And if you cycle around the digits, you get the number 31, which is also prime. Yes. And so the question I put to Ben was, right, if you had, like, the number 173 is prime, as is the number 317, which mm-hmm. is if you cycle it around once, but the number 731 is not. Okay. Uh, I asked, are there any cycles of primes between 100 and 10 million? And he gave me a list. Nice. And there were quite a few. Wow. Um, they, they get rarer as they get longer which makes sense. Yeah. But if you're looking at a number like 919393... 919393. All of the cycles of that are prime. Nice. And there's a a whole list of them. It's lots. That's pretty useful. The thing that always wound me up in Scrabble with words is that you can never build a word with your rack because you've always got to play off someone else's letters. Yeah. And this is the advantage of the cycles. You can start it wherever you like. Yeah. That is that is a pretty good advantage. You can stretch it on to get that triple word score. But you can extend on either end. Oh, of course. Yes, you can just... Yeah, yeah, it just... It just moves across however you want it to. That's very advantageous. Now I'm thinking about whether there are any words like that. That's exactly what I was thinking of as well. <laughs> you can think of two-letter ones. I, on and no. I, I think... I think... Ooh. O-O-H. And then you get yeah. oh-ho and who, which is a, a type of house. <laughs> okay. Or the sound an owl makes. It'd be interesting to see how many of those are Scrabble legal. 
Well, a who definitely is. Oh, yeah, but ooh and oh ho might not be. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's awkward because where do you place the vowel? It is awkward because yeah, if you had like alt and then you'd end up with tal, which probably isn't a word. And luta. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. It's um Are there any words which are just the same letter three times? No. There's the study of eggs, which is oology, isn't it? <laughs> which is three three O's in a row, and then logy. <laughs> That's awful. No, but you're right. Well, of course, one word is mmm, which is three M's. <laughs> yeah, where all the cycles are the same word. And there's ah, uh, which is three A's. Um, yeah, but no, no, it's it's difficult. I think there probably aren't any words like that, but I, I would be pleased to be proved wrong. Evil, Levi. But you're you're being very ambitious, going for a four-letter one. I love. Yeah. Then vile. Um, yeah. Well, because I knew that evil and vile were shifted, so I was, I was checking the other ones. <laughs> That's one for the one for the listeners, if you have anything for us. Who. Oh, getting somewhere. Who. How. And Ochwa. <laughs> no, it's, it's, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, this is really difficult. It's the yeah, it's the consonants. So it's probably got to be one with two consonants and one vowel. Hmm. I think you're probably right. Yeah. And consonants that can go together. Or consonants that can go together either way round. Hmm. Often the same consonant works, like two N's or two L's. Llama. <laughs> Alam. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. Worth. Um. Probably worth thinking about for at least two more minutes. Uh, out of the show and then giving up which is uh, you know often how my brain cycle works sorry yeah I'm, I'm thinking in my brain and I realise that that is not good podcast material no I mean one day we'll hook up the brains to the microphones <laughs> and, and and we'll get to hear all, exactly how your brain works do you have a good a model of how your brain works no no me neither I just sort of the answer just appears and I don't really know how it does it I think it's mostly picture based but mm. it's like abstract things just merging together yeah I don't think it's word based I remember you used to when I used to be in maths lessons I used to quite often think of the image of the number like if I was adding things together I had these sort of like very you know like old um, scoreboards that would go round yep I, I would kind of, kind of I would work like that like, say you're adding two two-digit numbers together. I would add the units of one first. It's a bit like when you're eating as a kid and you're like, oh, I want to eat the the tasty thing first. I like, eat your crisp before your sandwich or whatever. It's very tempting to want to do that, <laughs> to, to, to want to add the tens first. But you've got to be disciplined and add the, the units first and then the tens. Um, so I used to add the units and it would just rattle round. And then, mm. uh, yeah. Or, like or, it would be like a mechanical adder. Yeah, it would it would look a bit like a slot machine with the the pictures going around, but it would be numbers. I used to my brain used to sort of work like that, but nowadays I have no idea how my brain works. When I'm solving algebra, I'm just abstractly manipulating symbols on page. I'm not really thinking about what they are. Yeah, that's really dangerous. Mm. I think I, I used to get like that. Like I look back at some of my old physics notes, and it's just these symbols, and clearly they had some meaning, but. Uh, in a certain sense, I really had no idea 
what I was manipulating. It gets even more dangerous when those things start to have like a physical meaning, right? Like it's Boltzmann's constant, or it's the velocity of something, or oh yeah, oh God knows, right? You're you're moving this physically significant symbol around the place, and it's almost like perverse. It's almost yeah, it, it's there's something weird about that. You're manipulating nature in in a way that you don't really understand, and then you come out with something that makes some sense, but. It's like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. There's this big, horrific mess between the two. Learning more maths is just getting more familiar with which steps are allowed and which ones aren't. And you build up an intuition for that. Yeah. And each of these steps individually, you've seen them justified at some stage. Like usually the start of your maths degree, you do a course called analysis, where you go through a lot of detail justifying each of these steps. Mm. But then you fall back into just using them. And that's fine. Like, maths is building up some tools that you can then use quickly and efficiently, knowing that somewhere at the end of it, there is a proof that it's right. Yeah, you sort of, you shut your eyes, hold your nose, and, uh, and, and, and wait till it's over. And then it's over, and then, and then there's the answer. But it's about, it's almost like blindfolded walking through a maze. You know which, which turning points will run you into a wall, and which ones will, which ones won't, based on the vague sound. It's like echolocation. Am I making any sense at all? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's slowly tailing off. Okay. Um, so, back to our prime thing. How do you think things would be scored, then, if you were to put a score on the tiles? Obviously, even numbers would probably be higher scoring. But so would five. Yeah. If you look at the two-digit primes, and you tally up how often those digits occur, then five doesn't occur very much at all. Yeah. It's like the even numbers. The number zero doesn't occur at all. No. Anywhere. Yeah. No. Um, which is a bit unfair because we're cutting it off just before you would get some. You're cutting it off just before 101 and 103. Yeah. But zeros are definitely the hardest one to get down. Yeah, so for normal people, zero would be really highly scoring. If you had people yep. that probably know a good sense of all the primes under a thousand... Which there probably aren't that many people who can do that. But then the points start to even out a little bit. I'm worried a little bit also about um, if everybody's putting down twos, you'll get these big long diagonal snakes. And you think about how those tally up and chain together. I think at most you're going to get a few threes and you're going to get lots of twos. If you're playing with normal people that hadn't looked at primes before. Yeah. So if you imagine someone goes 23 and then... Well, the options are what, like 31, 37? And then you have 1 and 7. And so these things kind of branch in interesting ways. And it's almost like you're putting down one at a time. And it, yep. sits, on a, it sits on a directed graph. And most of the time you're playing your odd numbers as well. Actually, yep. when you're in, a, when you're in a, a snaky chain of 2 by 2s you're only ever going to have an odd number at the start. Because you can't put down something that ends in an even number. Hmm. which makes threes really important Uh, so it actually it may be advantageous to you to not memorize the threes because then you're just going to give your opponent opportunities to put down oh so would like o5 count if you put down a zero no i dislike that i dislike that as well so that's a great way to block people off you don't really know much right put one down with a zero in and they, they, they can't really join anything up to that Unless they know a, th- a three-digit 
Prime as well. I might mock up a version of this game and see how it actually plays. My hunch is not well. Oh yeah, it's going to be an absolute catastrophe. But <laughs> it's uh, it's fun to think about. Alaric Siv. Alaric Siv. I named it after me. I do that sometimes. Mm. A false sense of grandeur. And you put Alaric on it, you don't put Stephen on it. No, I suppose that's not very in, in keeping with a mathematician, is it? How many other mathematicians are they called Alaric, really? Especially with a C. I see some Ks, but with a C. So, uh, it was something that I was working on on my way to my Oxford interview back many years ago. la da look who went to Oxford. <laughs> so, in maths interviews for Oxbridge, there are some common proofs that they ask you to do. And so on the train, I was running through the common ones. Mm-hmm. So proving there's an infinite number of primes and proving that root 2 is irrational, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And in part of the proving root 2 is irrational, I was just doing the normal method. So you do it as a proof by contradiction. Yeah. You assume that you can write it as a fraction, say, um, A over B. Yeah. And then you prove some things by rearranging the algebra. Um, and you show that A and B must have a common factor. I'm not going to go through the details. Yep. Um, but at one point in the proof, you need to make the jump that if A squared is an even number, you want to show that A is an even number as well. Ah. Uh-huh. Where A is an integer. And it's easy to see the other way. Like, if A is an even number, then A squared is an even number. Yeah. Um, it's slightly less obvious to see going the other way. So, the way in is you could try A as an even number, you could try A as an odd number, you could square them both up, and you could see what happened. If A was an even number, then you get an even number. Yeah. For A squared. Yeah. If A was an odd number, then A squared you get as an odd number as well. Yeah, I was going to say, is is, is that not trivial? An odd number times an odd number is an odd number. So, yeah. So if you have an even number that's a square number, it can only ever be, can only ever have an even root. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm slightly spelling it out because it's a common misconception when people are doing proof uh, A-level. Okay. Um, that They get the implies the wrong way around on this. Right. Is you're looking at what the other cases do. Go on. So you're looking at what A as an odd number would square to rather than what A as an even number would square to. Right. That's the important bit. Okay. And so um, I got thinking, if you were trying to do the same thing with threes... If you had A as a multiple of 3, or A as 1 more than a multiple of 3, or A as 2 more than a multiple of 3, when you square those things up, A as a multiple of 3 gives A squared as a multiple of 3. That's fine. Yeah. But both 1 more than a multiple of 3 and 2 more than a multiple of 3, when you square them, give a number that's 1 more than a multiple of 3. Yes, that makes sense. Wait, hold and on. So- I've got it for I've got it for, for 1 more. The other one you yep. can think of as one less rather than two more. And okay. then, yeah, that ends up the same as well. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so you get this fact that no square number is two more than a multiple of three. No square number is two more than a multiple of three. That's a good finding. And you could go deeper. You could try it instead of twos and threes. You could go more. And you could find more and more rules for what square numbers can't be. Sure. Yeah. Now, when you try doing the maths on this, it's just arithmetic. It just gets longer and longer. Uh, 
any number that you try which is a composite number, so not a prime, just gives you the same results as the primes it's composed of. So for example, if you try doing 6, um, 1 more than the multiple of 6, and so on, it just gives you the same results as 2 and 3. So does, it, it's not worth your time. Does it? Hmm. Yeah, I guess so. So, the only ones it's worth trying are primes. So, if you're doing the 5s, um, you can get square numbers which are multiples of 5, you can get square numbers which are 1 more than multiple of 5, and you can get square numbers which are 4 more than multiples of 5. Yeah. But not 2 more or 3 more. Right, so a square number can never be 2 more than a multiple of 5, or 3 more than a multiple of 5. Yeah. Which, since we use a base 10 system, is really nice to say... You can never get a square number ending a 2, a 3, a 7, or an 8. Hmm. Um, so that's the rule for 3s and 5s, but you can keep going. And each one gives you more and more numbers that you can cross out. You do, so you do 7s next, and then 11s. Yep. Yeah. Um, by the time you've crossed out all the numbers, like I've done it on a little 10 by 10 grid here, I'll put a, a, an image of it up in the show notes. It's quite pretty, seeing all the patterns come together. Yeah. Um you've got mostly the squares left. So the numbers left after you've taken out the 3, the 5, the 7, and the 11 are 1, 4, 9, 15, so not a square, 16, 21, 25, 36, 49, 60, 64, 70, 81, 91, 99, 100. So it's pretty close. Like, it's got rid of most of the numbers that aren't square already. So a square number is allowed to be 4 more than a multiple of 11. Uh, how did you get that? Because you got 15. Oh, yeah. That's true. Are there any good examples of that? Uh, 81? 6, 37... Yeah, 81. There we go. Hmm. Hmm, cute. <laughs> now, it's something that when I got to the interview, I had two interviews at St. Catherine's, which is where we both ended up going. And then I had one interview at St. Peter's. Um, I think my St. Catherine's interviews went fine. But I had a really good one when I went to St. Peter's. Because the interviewer started the interview by asking me to prove that Route 2 was irrational. I was like, aha! Um, I know how to do this. But do you want to see the thing I was working on? (laughs) I was doing this on the train. I haven't completely formed it as an idea, but do you want to see it? And he indulged me. Hmm. And then we spent pretty much the whole of their interview just going deeper into this. Nice. And then I got a call back at St. Peter's, and it, um, I don't know, it went well. But it's something that I wrote up as an article back in 2010, and I put across some open things about it. So what I'd like to know from you bright people out on the internet is, does every non-square number get crossed out eventually if you carry on doing this method, if you do more and more iterations? Because you definitely don't cross out the square numbers, but I'm wondering whether there's some non-square number which gets left. Well, let's do the case for 13, then. Okay. Because the last one, because you're running out of time on 15, so you'll have to do the one for 13. Can numbers be two more than, than, than 13? Okay. If we think of it as 13n, 13n plus 1, 13n plus 2, etc., all the way up to 13n plus 12... Yep. When we square it, all we really care about is the last digit, uh, the last number. Yep. So what we're doing is 0 squared, 1 squared, 
2 squared, etc. All the way up to 12 squared. And we're worrying about whether they're a multiple of 13. Like what those numbers are mod 13. Yeah. So square numbers mod 13. So 0 squared mod 13 is 0. 1 squared mod 13 is 1. Yeah. 2 squared mod 13 is 4. Right. 3 squared mod 13 is 9. 4 squared, it would be 16, but mod 13, that's 3. Okay. And so what do you hope to discover from what's left over here? What we're after in these last numbers, so 0, 1, 4, 9, 3, etc. Yeah. Is if they start repeating, then you're going to get some numbers which are not possible to do. So, for example, if the number 2 comes never comes up in the last column, then we that means there are no square numbers of the form 2 more than a multiple of 13. So we're looking for what which ones aren't in our list. Okay, keep going. Uh, 25 mod 13? Uh, 12. 12, yep. 36 mod 13? Mm, uh, 10. 9? 10. Ooh. 10. Cool, thank you. Uh, 49? Wait, hold on. Did you say 36 mod 13? 26 yeah. mod. 36 mod 13, yes, is 10 more than 26, which is 2 times 13. Yeah. Yeah. 49? Uh, 10. You're quicker at this than I am. Yep. S- 64? Oh, this way it gets difficult. What's 4 times 13? 52. So 64 is 12. Thank you. Oh, I think we've got our pattern arriving here. 81? Is it 3? Is it 3? 52, 65, uh, 78. Yes, it's 3. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, it repeats after this point. Okay, so you've got a pattern. Which you can see by doing... Remember when you did the mod, first, mod 3 thing, where you added one or took away one? Yeah. You can think of this as like adding so many or taking away so many. So okay. it repeats. So what's this pattern? And explain... Yeah, as, as though I were a child or a Labrador, what it, what it means. Um, so we've got a whole lot of numbers here, which are square numbers mod 13. This is me not describing it to a child. Okay. But I think you're only going to have followed it through to this point if you know what mod means. Yeah. Um, so in our column, we've got the number 0, we've got the number 1, we've got the number 3, which means that there are square numbers which are of the form 0 more than a multiple of 13, or 1 more than a multiple of 13, or 3 more, or 4 more. Yep. But there's no 2 more here. Aha! Um, so there's no way to get a square number which is 2 more than a multiple of 13. That's the result yep. that is we wanted. Yeah. Similarly, we can't get 5, or 6, or 7, or 8, or 11. Can't get... Go from the start. How many can't you not have? You can't have two. Two, five, six, seven, eight, eleven. Two, five, six, seven, eight, eleven. That's quite. That's quite a dense sieve. Yeah. You strip quite a lot out with that. So the important thing is there that you can't have two more than thirteen, which means that fifteen, which is getting dangerously close to getting through the sieve, <laughs> is yeah. ruled out. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Hmm. Yeah. And you can carry it on forever, and it becomes quite quick for a computer. Obviously, there are quicker ways of calculating square numbers. Uh, yeah, there are. Like, taking numbers in a row and squaring them. 
but it, it's a sieve in that we're try- we're finding all the numbers that aren't square and taking them away. Hmm. It's, it's not practical, no. but it's, uh, it's just a nice little number for everything. Yeah, that's very nice. Well done. Well done, Alaric, from the past. You're so much better mm. than Alaric in the present. Bright and hopeful. Yeah. The very long hair. Ah, oh, yeah. It's glorious. Mm. Debatable. <laughs> So, feedback. We got a rather lovely email from someone called Alex Zorn um, from UC Berkeley in California. And he's just listened to episode two. So that was our Christmas episode back a long time ago, back in December. And he's got some thoughts on some of the problems. Um, Nice. This email was about three pages long. It was great. We love feedback like this from the listeners. Yes, we do love emails of incredible length. It's uh, it's always nice to have someone go into excruciating detail on something because then like we can really get it, and then when we really get it, we can explain it really well to to the audience as well. Um, it's something called the curse of knowledge. It's uh, if you understand something really well, oftentimes you really struggle to explain it to people that may not be at your level. Um, but if you can give us something detailed, uh, Alaric and I are relatively good without tooting our horn too much we're relatively good at explaining things simply so if we can get it detailed then we can synthesize and spit it out simply to, to the audience if that makes sense well you've set the bar quite high here we need to explain yes. it really uh, well <laughs> yes well here we go <laughs> so it's our favourite problem the wrapping a Rubik's Cube with a piece of ribbon the but, best problem we ever did yep so far well, I quite like the coin problem as well Ah, quite the coin problem. So, Alex Zorn's thoughts on this. He's got a bound on the number of different wrappings that you can do. Nice. The bound is 16. He put in a picture, and I'll I'll tweet it out as well. Um, And we'll put a link to to it in the show notes. Um, Lots and evenings on Twitter. Ding! He's done it almost like a graph or anything. So kind of decision map style. So you can imagine each of the faces having a node of order four so it connects to the four nodes around it but not the one on the opposite side of the cube and you can imagine it like you're cutting each node so when you've got two right angles meeting it's like you've got a line going into the node and then coming out of it yeah and then you've got another line going into the node and coming out of it so you could split the node into two pieces it's like you're cutting each node and each time you're reducing the order of the graph by one Mm, yes so you can cut the first node without loss of generality Um, and you end up with something it's very hard to describe this picture but imagine a figure of eight with a kind of circle overlaid over it yeah Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the circle crosses the figure of eight at four points plus the figure of eight crosses itself at one point so you you end up with a five node thing hmm that you can cut in two different ways um, one of them ends up looking like three circles crossing each other a bit like Olympic rings yep and the other is harder to describe <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, this is, is a very visual thing for a podcast it looks like a graph theory thing yeah yeah so what you're saying is there's ways to cut and remove arcs as you're going without loss of generality yep and then you end up with... Well, where does it end up? Well, you end up with two different graphs, uh, each of which can be cut in eight different ways. 
you have to be careful not to split the whole thing, not to make it into two subgraphs. Mm-hmm. Um, so the devil's in the details of these things. Each one you have to be a bit careful just how you're cutting it. But each one ends up with eight different ways. And so in total, you've got 16 different ways. Sure. Now, this is only an upper bound to the number of solutions um, because this doesn't take into account some of the symmetries of the cube. So, did you say it was 16? 16 is an upper bound here. 16. And so, well, we know that there's a mirror symmetry. Yeah. So, that would, bring down to, that would bring down to 8. And then we also know that if you imagine you're at the top of the Rubik's Cube, you can set off at north, south, east, or west. Okay. So you're dividing by Which four is, again. That's fourfold, yeah. Which brings you down to two. Yep. And Which matches... Matches the number of solutions we found. As uh, one of my students, I think we mentioned it back in episode four, one of my students manually went through and found there were two different solutions. Maths works, folks. Um, Alex Zorn also fed back on the finger hopping game also episode two yes now this is seriously important in my life this particular feedback because i've been finger hopping mm, since i was maybe like 11 i invented it on my hands and i've been like doing it ever since so the fact i can we can get to some uh detail here is just phenomenal for me and thank you very much alex for for what you've done for me in my life um yeah do you want let's, let's go into it so for an even number of points an even number of fingers um, there's a bound that Alex Zorn found and incredibly he's found a way of always reaching that bound so he's found the best solution nice the idea is you start if you've got 2m points then if you start at m and you end at m plus 1 so those two middle points yeah and if you always cross the centre so you're always going from somewhere on the left to somewhere on the right, mm-hmm. then no matter which path you do, you get to that maximum distance. So a polydactyl individual with six fingers on their hand, yep. let's say they've got an extra an extra little finger, yep. and, it's, and it's their left hand in front of them with the palm facing towards them. Okay. They would need to start, because it's six fingers, that's two times three. Yep. So they need to start on what we know is the middle finger. Yep. And they need to end on what we know as the ring finger. Yep. And as long as they hop between the space between the middle and ring finger... Yep. ...every time, then that's uh, that's always going to be an optimal solution no matter what path you take? Yes. Which is incredible. Very elegant. That's very elegant, yeah. So for odd, if you got 2m plus 1, if you start at the middle, so you start at m plus 1, mm-hmm. and you end at either m or M plus 2, so one of the ones next to it. And again, you're alternating left to right. Then again, you reach that maximum bound. So again, with your left hand palm facing towards you, Yep. you start in the middle finger, Yep. and then you touch either the index finger or the ring finger, Yep. and then take any path, as long as it hops over the, the middle finger, Yep. which I think there's actually only one such path, as long as you've chosen a finger, the se- you know, as long as you've chosen the second finger that you're going on, there's only one such path. Yep. Then that's going to be the optimal solution. There would obviously be more parts if you had seven fingers on your hand. So, is applications to the advent calendar problem? If we're using the taxicab metric, then 
If you've got an even grid, so 2m by 2m, then if you treat it as two 1D things, you've got one direction where you're going from left to right, and you've got one direction where you're going from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. You can treat it as two versions of the finger game. Right. And so if you just make sure that you're always alternating from left to right and top to bottom, so you're always going over that kind of center, Yeah. then you're all good. Wouldn't that mean you're just flipping between two quadrants, though? And there'd be two untouched quadrants. Yeah, so you have to do one bodge move where you're going... Imagine you start in the top left and you, you've been alternating between top left and bottom right. Mm. You have to do one move where you stay on the same side. Say yeah. you stay on the left, but you're on, you're alternating from top to bottom. I guess you need to do that at the end. It's kind of halfway through. So once well, you've so cleared, the, so, yeah. once you've cleared out... A, verse, a corner then you do the bodge move and then you clear out the other two corners right and due to the way that the rule set works with regards to the optimum move you are going to end up in one of the central four yeah and then you I guess you take whatever the longest path is to some corner somewhere when you're doing that or do you what's best what's the best move you're in the middle Let's say you're in the bottom right quadrant in the top left of it. Where do you go as your bodge move? Um, so to optimize it, I, I'm going to quote Alex Zorn's uh, email here. Sure. Uh, to optimize, when you make this move, you should cross from the leftmost vertex on the left to the rightmost vertex on the left, say. So on in that example, he's staying on the left-hand side in that one, but he's optimizing it by going from like one extreme to the other extreme in that same quadrant. Right. right. Oh, so it doesn't... Oh, wait, no, it has because... to swap a quadrant, doesn't it? Yeah, well, but so let's say let's say that you've ended up... Your first two quadrants were the top right and the bottom left. I think that's what he's kind of saying. And you've, and you've finished in the middlemost node in the bottom left. Yep. He's saying that you need to jump optimally such that you still fit yourself into the problem space of the next one. Yeah. Which I guess means that you need to... Actually, the only way to meaningfully do it is to not do that and to go to the adjacent space and then just start the problem again. Because you're not going to get optimal in the other two quadrants if you end up starting on the furthest left. You know what I mean? Yeah, like you should, I do. You should... Yeah. Uh, and I wonder how that plays into... Oh, there's a nuance here that hasn't been covered. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> um, interesting. Corner case. Uh, not even corner case. It comes up every time. What do you do? Do you optimize the bodge move, or do you or do you optimize the overall solution with the remaining two quadrants? I think you optimize the bodge move, because when you're in those other quadrants, as long as you're going from, say, top left to bottom right, you're crossing the center every time, then it is equal to its upper bound. But you're not starting in those two quadrants. You're not starting at M. Oh, I see what you mean. You need to start at M. Yeah. For the op- for optimal. You need to start. Now at I middle. don't know how. I don't know if I don't know how much more optimal it is. Right? Maybe the that amount of optimality isn't enough to justify not making the largest possible bodge move. Yep. Because if you think about it, by the taxicab metric, if you're going adjacent, that's like one thing that you're going over. And you know, in my head, that counts as zero 
because of how I used to score the finger popping, but I guess that doesn't matter. And then, um, if you're going to the furthest corner, on the same side, that is one, two, three, four, five. Yep. So it's a difference of four. And is the suboptimal solution that starts in the top left less than four less than the optimal solution? My hunch is that they even out and it doesn't actually matter. I don't have a hunch. Um, he hasn't done the odd case here. So with the odd case, you've got middle ones that you have to worry about. But I imagine it's yeah. a similar solution. Well, I think... Yeah, it probably would be. Because then, if you... Ooh. Yeah, if you try and solve it for... Let's say you've got these two quadrants that kind of overlap by one. So, if on a 5x5, five five, you take a 3x3 three three in the top left and a 3x3 three three in the bottom right. And they share one node. Yep. You could solve that as a as an odd-numbered finger problem. And then you could bod yourself into this other one that's made of two disparate 2x2s. Yep. Yeah. The, I don't know if that's optimal or not, but that's that's how I would initially approach it when trying to look for a good solution. So then what does that actually mean for the original advent calendar problem? We're saying that given that an advent calendar... Ah, uh, an advent calendar is... Uh, what grid was an advent calendar? Were we saying it was a 25, a 5x5? Five five? Yep. So we don't have a solution for that. No. And... Uh, this isn't quite the original problem because this is the Tatscat metric rather than Euclidean. Yeah. We were up in the air as to which was more important. Well, but, Euclidean is horrible and chaotic. Well, Euclidean is just a... Uh, it's a travelling salesman problem. Yeah. Or it's like a... It's a... Well, it's the opposite. It's a... It's a root lengthening travelling salesman problem. So I guess you can always take the inverse of the... of the lengths or something like that and then travelling salesman it. It's real graph theory stuff. Yeah. At that point, minimax problem. Yeah, it's it's, it's path optimization, and not just you know, fun little discrete jumping puzzle. It moves to unsolved problem in discrete mathematics. So, in one of the feedback sections in the past, I can't remember which episode, we talked about the Euclidean metric, and I manually did the three by three case of it, mm-hmm. and that had a horrible non-symmetrical answer. Yes, it did, didn't it? But that was very satisfying in its unsatisfyingness. Because you kind of want... If you're trying to, you know, make an advent calendar where it's hard to find where the doors are, you don't want it to have predictability. Yeah, I see what you mean. What we wanted was maximum surprisingness. Hmm. And so it's nice that it's ugly. Yep. Whereas, it seems like for the taxicab metric solution on a even-sided square you've got a uh, you've got a problem in that you always know for the first let's say it's a 36 day month you always know that for the first 18 days it's going to be in the top left or the bottom right <laughs> yeah it's going to alternate you'll be like oh, okay i know where to go it's the oh, second day of the month so it must be in the bottom right somewhere you know where it is i'm not adding game theory to this So, thank you for joining us on Odds and Evenings this episode. Always very tempted to say this week, but of course this comes out every two weeks. Uh, You're welcome for that level of regularity. We used to think that maybe we would do it monthly, but 
We just couldn't keep ourselves away from the maths. We talked about three different things this week. Uh, Alaric, what was the first thing we talked about? We were doing Harari Tic-Tac-Toe. We talked about some other knots and crosses related things as well. But, uh, this was this, finding the smallest grid and the smallest number of moves for different objects. And how satisfied were you with that discussion? We didn't really solve anything. We just sort of went through it. Yeah. I, I mean, it all all been solved other than Snakey. Other than Snakey. And we couldn't solve Snakey. Yep. We didn't try. No. We assumed we couldn't solve Snakey, which frankly is a little bit pessimistic of us. If masters like Martin Gartner and Her- Frank Herreri can't solve it, then we can't. Well, hmm... You know, people tried to undo the Gordian knot for very long until it took Alexander the Great to uh, to take a uh, take a sideways glance at it. So, yeah, maybe maybe these people like Martin Gartner, who you bring up every episode, you're like, I read this in a Martin Gartner book. Just thought I'd <laughs> point that out. Um, like maybe they just they they can't see the wood for the trees. Maybe mm. there's a real easy answer to this. Get Ben to program it up. Yes, brute force, smash it. So I had you a know, reasonably satisfying discussion, especially when you started to talk about like the the one thing I liked in that was the uh, the subcomponents, and you know if they if they contain one that can't be solved, then therefore they can't be solved. Yep. You know I like that kind of thing. Like we talk about this is one thing that we'll talk about at some point in the future, but we talked about eigen games, or like like the base base games of which all games are built. I, um, I still have that on the back burner as something we're going to do in the future. We're going to have to talk about that in the future. So we'll get to that. But I like this idea of base uh, base components of these of these dominoes. Yep. Um, is there... Uh, we kept saying dominoes or tetrominoes. Or is there like a word for that encompasses all of that? Uh, poly... Polyminoes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like this sort of base polyminoes thing. That was going on. That was very cool, and that sort of it sort of gave it about a seven out of ten. I liked all the parity, coloring sort of things. Oh, we They're talked about that groups. as well. Okay, yeah, eight. <laughs> I'm bumping us up. A lot of maths is staring deeply at something for about ten minutes, and then exclaiming, "Oh, it's a parity problem," and that that's kind of enough of a solution when you've got multiple mathematicians in a row, room. Yeah. It's nice. So I, I once got reprimanded at university for... We were doing uh, first-order differential equations, which, as anybody who's done them knows, they're actually surprisingly difficult because there are multiple forms that they can take. And the key to solving first-order differential equations is to identify the form they're in and then to just apply a technique. Like, there's not a lot of thinking involved. And I, yep. I, I got pulled up by my maths tutor for not actually solving them, but just identifying what kind of solution they were. Yeah, this and, one's a separation of variables. This one's an integration factor. Done. Yeah, exactly. And he said, no, you've actually got to solve them. And he was right, you know, because when it came to the exam, I didn't actually know how to do the technique. I just knew <laughs> that there was, you know, and I ended up not doing that great. Um, but nevertheless, had I practiced them, and were I fluent in, in the solution... Uh, yeah, I would have just uh, would have just done that. My favourite for, for second order differential equations, which are by the way much easier, uh, was was the decoupling. I'd always be like, oh, I've got to work out if it's a decoupling problem, and then just boop, and then you can just decouple it easy. Um, how do we get onto this? Eight. Yes, good. 
Right, so the next one was Prime Scrabble, which I enjoyed the discussion by the end of the 2x2 snaking. Mm. Because, you know, you made an assumption right at the start that people are only going to know two-digit ones. And the 2x2 snaking thing is very much the logical conclusion of that behaviour. I think if you asked 100 people, you gave them, say, 30 seconds to name the biggest prime that they knew. Yeah. That they would all be two-digit. Yeah. You know what the biggest square is, I know? No. It's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Which, as any good person who's doodled about with a calculator knows, is 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, squared. Uh, you can easily think of the powers of 10. Powers of 100, powers of 1,000. Shut up, Alaric! <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, okay, fine. 10 to a million is a, is a square number. <laughs> but can you name all the digits? Yes, of course, it's 1, 0, 0, 0, 0. Yeah, okay, fine, fine, you win. Um, what's the highest prime number you know? 103. I mean, other than just giving them their name, like the Merzen prime that was found a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, but 103, because we were talking about it earlier. Oh, wait, no, we talked about some bigger ones. We Like 173 we mentioned. Yeah, that's true. We named... We did, what's your one of your... You had like a... It was like 11069. Without bringing it up, I remember one of them was either... Two four six eight zero three, or two four six eight zero nine, and I can't remember which one. Hmm. Listeners, without without looking it up, tweet at us your biggest prime number with hashtag <laughs> big old prime. What's the biggest prime number you know? Hashtag big old prime, and uh, send it to at odds and evenings. Uh, that was a relatively satisfying discussion. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a nine on that. Uh, seven. Okay, fair. So there wasn't much crunch. The, no crunching. Uh, the last one we did was the Alaric sieve, which, <laughs> dude, dude, we we did it at the end there. You know, we were worried that something was going to be disproven, and we successfully kicked the can down the road, which is you know all a good mathematician can really hope to do. So I I'm throwing it out there just as. An appeal for information. So what I want to know is is every number that isn't square eventually caught in the sieve? Right. How on earth would you go about solving that in a general case? If you could find some sort of systematic way, so say we were looking at the number 15 and we were trying to find some sort of thing which targeted it to get rid of it. Maybe there's some sort of link you could do? Some sort of formula which tells you which mod to try? Right. Yes. And therefore, anything that spits out no mods to try would be one mm-hmm. that would be one that passes through. Yeah, I like that. That's a good appeal. It's a real nice, tricky, unsolved problem. So, how satisfied were you? Well, we didn't really do anything. I just told you a story. Yeah, we did do something. We About we, a time I did maths. We kicked the can down the road. We did it for 15. We were worried. I was okay. worried. I don't know if you were worried. We did a fifth iteration on top of the four that I already did back eight years ago. Yeah. All right. Yeah, you're right. It's probably more like a five, isn't it? Yep, that's five. No, oh, hold on. You can go lower. You don't seem very satisfied at all. 
<laughs> Why do you want me to go low? Because you 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 never do low ones. Okay. Yeah. Two. Nice. Good. Well done. Right. That about wraps it up for for this fortnight's episode. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for listening. I uh, hope you had a very good time. Uh, we uh, this was a good episode. I had a good time. Alan, did you have a good time? I did. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It gets me back in the math spirit for going back to work. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then you have it forced upon you by yeah. yeah burden of employment. Well, I mean, I have chosen to go to a job which involves a lot of maths. That's true. Listeners, if you'd like to do a lot of maths, uh, hit us up on the Twitters. Uh, our Twitter account is at Odds and Evenings. We've got a subreddit, Reddit. Co- Reddit uh, we've got a subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Odds and Evenings. Uh, yeah, we have an email address. Totally forgotten what it is, but you can email it's us stuff. Oddsevenings at gmail.com. Oddsevenings at gmail.com. We should probably get around to setting up a uh, at Odds and Evenings address at some point. I check that email regularly. Okay, very good. Email us things at oddsevenings at gmail.com. Our theme music is by David Russell. Uh, you can find him at youtube.com slash David Russell 323. And uh, is there anywhere else we can reach us? Yes, you can reach me at twitter.com slash speakmouthwords. And where can people find you, Alaric? Well, I checked the main Odds and Evenings Twitter account. Yeah. That's how to get me. Brilliant. So if you want to reach Alaric, just, you know, reach us. And you may accidentally reach me instead. But if you say, hey, Alaric, at the start, I'll make sure it gets through to him. Thank you for listening. And uh, good night. Good night, Alex. Thank you for listening, and, uh, Good night. Good night, Alex. Night, night. Sleep tight. That's not going in. Okay. <laughs>